Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the Perimeter Insight Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Doyle. Today, I'm joined by my old buddy, Mr. Greg Betts. Greg, it's great to see you again. How are you? Pretty good, Jake. Nice to see you again. Greg, as many of you know, is a regular on this podcast. And today, we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Andre Longvost. Andre is a German lawyer working in France, and he is the Secretary General of the European Solar Manufacturing Council, or ESMC. So, properly enough, we are going to be talking about solar today. Andre takes an holistic approach to energy, meaning that consumption as well as production need to be considered when planning Europe's energy future. And while he works mainly in solar, you'll find he has a lot to say about other renewable energy systems. As he says, Europe's energy needs require augmented solutions with the deliberative participation of the private and public sectors. Greg, I should add, is himself involved in the solar business, having built several of his own electricity generating solar parks in Central Europe. So he has that as his area of expertise more so than I do. Andre, I see you are wearing a t-shirt that says clean energy for all Europeans. So I guess that's a big part of your role at the ESMC. Am I correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you very much for the invitation and uh, pleasure to be uh, with you. Let, let me give you a short overview. Trained uh, lawyer and historian, uh, started in a couple of European countries, uh, like in, in started in Germany, uh, continued in France, and uh, even went to Poland. So I speak as well a couple of languages, and I'm pure European uh, because I think well, if we want to do something in future, uh, we need to work together. We need to work much more together. And being a historian, well, that shows me as well. Well, you know, the last 200 years uh, there have been several conflicts within Europe. Uh, we need to change that. The European Union is one quite interesting uh, organization that uh, can push things forward because uh, when they were founded by the founding members, they understood if we do not want to have any conflict between us, well, we need to work together. We need uh, to do business uh, together so that there's no reason uh, to shoot to each other. And uh, uh, while now we're in 2020, Europe is, is quite peaceful. We need to handle now as well Corona crisis. And I think industrial cooperation uh, on a European level and beyond because our structure the European Solar Manufacturing Council, ESMC, is, is not uh, uh, exclusive in the meaning that we exclude. Um, but first, we need to, uh, to get some things running again in Europe. Why again? Because uh, while the solar industry had its uh, start in Europe, uh, lost because of, let's say, uh, unhappy political decisions. Uh, now it's uh, mainly outside of Europe, but we need to bring it back. And uh, if we want to bring it back, we need to cover the entire value chain. Well, that sounds very compelling and interesting. Maybe you can just bring us up to speed before we jump ahead to the future of solar photovoltaic energy production, or PV as it's frequently called. Tell us a bit about the background of solar PV in Europe, how it developed, and maybe some of the key milestones you could talk a little bit about. Also, how subsidies played a role, and how capacity has been increasing, and now maybe how it's really a viable alternative to conventional energy feedstocks? The front runners in, in Europe had been in the 60s uh, and 70s, uh, the French. Um, there had been a great conference uh, co hosted by a friend of mine, uh, Wolfgang Pals, 
think it was 72 or so, the solar in, uh, in the service of humanity. And that was a great conference in Paris, uh, took place in UNESCO building. Uh, at that time, uh, uh, the French government hadn't yet uh, taken the decision to go to nuclear. Um, and uh, well, every, for everybody was quite promising, but since um, there had been some political decisions to go to, to other ways uh, of uh, electricity production, uh, then we had local energy production uh, facilities like, uh, particularly in Germany, coal. In Poland, it's still coal. And at that time, uh, it was just uh, too expensive to, to use solar on a larger scale. Uh, that has changed dramatically um, by the end of the 80s and 90s. Still, we needed a little bit larger um, outcome. That had happened in, in several countries. What I can experience from my German side, since I'm German-born, was that uh, particularly in Germany, uh, there had been the Junior Chamber uh, International uh, pushing uh, the project. And uh, when, let's say, the junior organization of the Chamber of Commerce uh, said something is good, well, the other people, they, they, they listened to that. But I can tell you all the discussions that, that I had uh, around 2000 when we had uh, in Hanover a, a project renewable energy in industrial buildings. The orientation is pretty much the same even nowadays. Well, then you asked me about uh, uh, support mechanisms. Um, uh, this year we celebrated uh, the 20th anniversary of the uh, Renewable Energy Act in Germany, the EEG. It's not necessary. Um, uh, subvention as such. It's a little bit different, a little bit more complicated uh, because all the electricity users pay for it. It's not the state uh, as such. So you're saying that the Renewable Energy Sources Act, or EEG, provided a feed-in tariff scheme to encourage the generation of renewable electricity in Germany, but it did so not through a conventional subsidy, but by adding a surcharge to all electricity consumption. Um, uh, that makes it as well that the German uh, electricity users pay a quite substantial higher electricity price because all the money that is needed uh, for this uh, support scheme um, um, had been covered somehow. We had, at the very beginning, nobody, even the people pushing forward uh, for the uh, renewable energy, like Hermann Scheer, who unfortunately died something like 10 years ago, but as well other fathers of this uh, Energy Act, uh, well, they never thought that we could uh, go further than 5-10% uh, in electricity production by renewables. And now we know in some months uh, that uh, Germany exceeded 50% uh, of all uh, production by renewables. It's not solar only. And uh, what should be as well very clear, even if, if I represent here at ESMC, uh, solar manufacturing in Europe, uh, we need to work together. Uh, it's uh, solar together with wind, uh, and we ha do not have only solar PV, but we've got as well solar thermal, we have bioenergy, we've got hydroelectricity and lots other sources of, of energy. And very important, we need uh, to see that in, with a holistic approach. It's not the electricity production as such. We need as well uh, to, to think about uh, transport. We need to think about uh, um, uh, heat. We need to think about industry. So how can we cover that? And what are the, the possibilities? So we should not see it too simple, but we need to, to open the arms uh, to, to bring more people inside who know how telecom works, how informatics works, because we only can, um, can solve the problem of a future uh, clean energy system if, if we work all together. You mentioned that there's been a few months when Germany actually exceeded 50% of its total energy output from renewables, whereas a decade ago it was hardly viable. What's been the breakthrough? What's explained this turning point? 
Um, I think the turning point was really uh, the, the, the uh, legal act that I mentioned before, the EEG, so the Renewable Energy Act. Uh, why? Um, because that made it even for bankers understandable that it's profitable business. Um, so this Renewable Energy Act, they, they gave, it gave you a, a fixed feed-in tariff. And with this guaranteed fixed uh, feed-in tariff, well, um, you, you made these projects bankable. So then with mainly uh, private money, and, and the main driver in, in Germany, but as well in other uh, countries, had been the citizens. Uh, right now, then, Germany, more than 1,000 uh, energy cooperatives, lots of people that invested in solar uh, and uh, wind and, and biogas, uh, because they thought, okay, well, we would like to have local electricity. And this mindset is as well quite important, that we understand, well, if we go for, for, for wind or if we go for solar um, and uh, bioenergy, well, most of the time it's, it's local energy. And if you, do, if you produce electricity locally, as local as possible, well, we do not need uh, the huge grids. So um, right now we come as well to a, quite amount of uh, renewable energy installed all over the world that uh, there are production facilities right now mainly in, in China, if we talk about solar PV. Yes, that's a big issue, right? That China has raced ahead with the production of solar panels and other technology that uh, is so necessary in solar energy production. Can you tell us a bit about how that happened? Uh, because the Chinese, they thought, okay, if we want to do something, we need to do that big so that we come to an economy of scale, um, that we, all the ingredients that we need, uh, I mentioned that as a value chain, um, uh, if we produce that on a large scale, well, we, get, uh, we can make better prices. And then one of the huge uh, points was that the Chinese government, they understood uh, at a certain point what is a long-term and mid-term industry strategy. Um, so my friend Ike Weber, who happens as well to be the co-president of, of ESMC, um, uh, he said, in 2008, uh, when the Chinese government started to understand the solar PV is something extremely interesting, well, they said, okay, well, we put quite a lot of money on the table, but it's not necessarily that they gave subventions. They just made the money cheap. So uh, Ike, Ike told me, well, around 2008, if you were able to spell more or less correctly photovoltaic, uh, you received some money, some, some grants, and you can, could start a, a business. You could start, uh, create a, a factory for, for um, uh, solar modules. And this so, is in this, so as you're saying, in China, if you wanted to start a factory to produce solar panels for domestic use or for export, you could get a lot of support from the Chinese government, and that just made it so cheap for you to produce you were bound to be, uh, you're bound to have a competitive advantage over producers of photovoltaic cells outside of China. Is that correct? Absolutely. But it's quite complicated because there are quite a lot of mechanisms inside. I mean, if we want to compare uh, all these mechanisms, well, it, it's quite tricky. And uh, I just can give you one example uh, because uh, earlier this week, uh, the European Commission has published a decision concerning uh, taxes on, on uh, Chinese solar glass. Because, as a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, some, uh, some of the bigger European producers, particularly Solar World, um, no longer existing, um, they said, okay, well, there's some not very uh, nice competition coming from the Chinese. Uh, they get quite a lot of support by the state, uh, so that is unfair. Uh, and the decision was to put some, some tax on it. It's always a little bit complicated if you want to uh, keep in line uh, all the regulations from the World Trade Organization. Uh, but still, and uh, well, when we as ECMC uh, were asked by DG Trade, so part of the um, European Commission, well, what is your opinion on that? We said, well, it's a little bit complicated. We can't say yes or no, because if 
if um, there, there are no more taxes on solar glass, well, then even the European uh, module producers, well, uh, they have a distinct advantage concerning the price. But on the other side, right now, there's no import tax on, on the modules as such, and the, mo the largest part of, the, uh, of this module is, is glass. So on the glass part, you don't have an import tax. So the, the Chinese uh, uh, panels, uh, they have a distinct advantage because there's no tax to be paid on the solar glass. Uh, Europe does not produce a lot uh, solar glass. So the, the remaining module producers, they, 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 have a, they have some kind of problem. So Chinese solar panel producers have had the advantage of cheap capital from the Chinese government or facilitated by the Chinese government. And Europeans have been at a bit of a disadvantage. And that's something that has to be fixed going forward, you seem to say. Uh, Greg, you seem to have a question. Labor, in terms of cost of labor in China versus Europe, it's not really a factor? Uh, it has been quite a substantial factor, but uh, like you know, is um, there a majority of our factories, you, you have uh, quite a robot. And I had the chance to visit last week, Voltec Solar, not very far from, from Strasbourg. Um, if you come to this small village, you, you do not have the clue that you have such a great uh, company over there. When you go inside, you, you're surprised. Lots of robots everywhere. And there's a huge part of that as well, automized. So this advantage is, is no longer that viable. Uh, and then quite interesting to, to understand is well, there had been some research done by uh, Fraunhofer uh, Institute for Solar Energy in Freiburg together with VDMA, which is the German uh, National Association of uh, Toolmakers. Uh, and, and they made a, a comparative analysis, well, where there are distinct advantages, what is the price difference if we produce, for example, solar panels in, in Poland, in Spain, or in Germany. And of course, well, since the labor cost is different, there's a, distinct, there's a distinction concerning the price. But, well, we need to invest in, in latest technology, and one of the latest technology is, for example, heterojunction. Very few days ago, there had been an excellent uh, announcement uh, coming from a Swiss toolmaker uh, that they're going to invest uh, in Germany and they're going to take over the old uh, production facilities from Solar World. They go for heterojunction. Uh. What's the practical advantage that having heterojunction uh, panels would give you? Andre, for us lay people, could you please explain to us what is heterojunction? Heterojunction. Yes. Uh, heterojunction is the technology that has the highest uh, possibility of uh, advancement for the efficiency. Meaning, uh, when you get some sunlight, uh, the question is how much of the sunlight you transform into electricity. And then there are a couple of different technologies uh, that go right now 21% uh, efficiency, 22%, and heterojunction got the potential to come even close to, to, to 30 And then there is something that is called perovskite that has uh, its origins in, in Oxford, what's called Oxford PV, but they are going to ramp up a production facility close to Berlin. They do perovskite, uh, where they use as well heterojunction. But well, to give you more details about this, if you've got questions, if you need some links as well, tell me and then I can provide. Don't expect a lawyer to explain too many uh, technical things. But, uh, Andre, just to summarize, either heterojunction or perovskite or with bifacial panels, all those things for a layman give you higher efficiency for the same size panel, that's correct? Well, absolutely. Um, but most important is as well to understand as well, it's not heterojunction only. Uh, what we need, saying towards the European Commission, but as well towards uh, uh, a couple of uh, national governments is, well, we need research. 
Right now, Europe is still leading. And if we want to keep this, well, we need to, uh, to bring back uh, production because if we've got production, we've got as well a little bit more money available uh, um, for the latest technologies. Uh, we are right now in a phases where a lot of very large-scale um, production facilities in, in China, they need as well to change their, their, their systems because uh, all these production systems, so China needs to ramp up. Uh, in Europe, there's a possibility. And all the uh, research that we've seen is first, um, well, we need massively ramp up if we really want to come close to all the uh, commitments that the, the governments have given in the Paris um, Agreement. So far, I think just small uh, countries uh, in, in Europe, uh, uh, they're able uh, to, to be in line with the Paris Agreement. And Andre, by the Paris Agreement, you uh, referred to the 2016 agreements within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which deals with greenhouse gas emissions, mitigation, adaptation and finance, signed by 195 countries. And for this, we need massively more uh, renewable energy. Andre, if I can just rewind a bit, you started out by talking how renewables or the different types of renewables, the industries and people involved with them must all work together, solar, wind, biogas, hydroelectric, etc., if renewables are going to succeed in Europe. Uh, you emphasized the importance of government involvement, of, of the government's support, for example, the EEG in Germany, which really helped put solar on the map because it made it a bankable industry. Uh, then you talked about the advantages of local character that renewables has, that renewables is local and this matters for consumers. It matches their needs and it also matches existing localized distribution and limits the need for these big grids and various problems that those involve. Also, you talked about the need to compete with China because China has gained the advantage in the production of solar technology, solar panels, and perhaps inverters and other bits of technology. And you talked about uh, the advantage that China's had because of their labor cheapness or their low cost of labor. But now that's a diminishing advantage because automation is coming into play, particularly in Europe. And uh, so that advantage may no longer be there or may not need to be there. And you say that also the, the panels, uh, the old panels are perhaps coming to their the end of their life cycles and that new technology, new solar technology, you mentioned uh, heterojunction and perovskite is emerging. So this seems to me that Europe may have an opportunity now with the help of these new technologies and with the help of automation to pull ahead of China. But I think you're going to be talking about some other factors that also must come into play if that's going to happen. We've established that solar photovoltaic is starting to take off in Europe. Perhaps you could tell us where it's going to be in five to ten years time. I mentioned a study that has been done by Lapland University, uh, Christian Breyer, uh, commissioned by Solar Power Europe. Uh, Christian said, if we're going to have an ambitious energy uh, policy, uh, we're going to be 2040, 60% uh, of all energy needs. So according to this prediction, by 2040, 60% of all energy needs will be met by solar. So not electricity only, all energy needs will be covered by solar PV. And he's not particularly uh, uh, linked with solar industry, uh, Christian. And then well, we need to think as well about different business models. I mentioned before, sector coupling is something that is very important. 
So with sector coupling, you're talking about linking energy production, such as solar PV, with specific energy consumption in buildings, transportation, and industry. Uh, right now, lots of people are talking about uh, uh, new electric cars. So um, if we replace the diesel or uh, um, by electricity, so the question is, where do we get it? You've been saying we'll get more and more of our electricity from solar, for example, from the solar parks that Greg here has been building. And if Greg, for example, if, if there's a, a national highway next to his place, if he puts uh, uh, the, the facility to, um, uh, to recharge an electric car, maybe he can make uh, more money uh, compared to selling uh, to the grid. Uh, maybe he, there is industry close uh, uh, to his place who, who needs uh, heat. So then he can transform as well the electricity to heat. Uh, so there are plenty of possibilities, and the possibilities they're different uh, from one country, from one region to, to another one. Right now, one of the one of our our, our members with ESMC uh, is Norsun. They produce wafers in in Norway. So that would be the Norwegian company Norsun that produces solar wafers, the circular discs of high purity silicon that are so vital to photovoltaic solar panels. Uh, and they get the electricity from um, hydroelectricity because they are next to, to the largest Norwegian glacier and that's the main reason for their fantastic ecologic footprint. Sorry Andre, but what exactly is an ecologic footprint? This idea of producing in a, in a, in a greener way to put an ecologic footprint on it, uh, mm -hmm. that is something quite important and as well for the new panels that we think about resource efficiency. And that brings up the importance of energy production supply chain awareness that you've previously emphasized. Now that you've covered sector coupling so nicely, could you say a few words about supply chains? Europe is a relatively poor continent concerning resources. So we need to bring them from, from all places of the world. Uh, and very often we do not care so far for the ecologic footprint. Uh, if you go for nuclear, nobody in France cares about the uh, working conditions of the people that produce the uranium. Um, or the, the lithium, where it comes from. Uh, if we destroy uh, some, some lakes in, in high uh, uh, southern American uh, countries, nobody cares really about that. We need to put an ecological footprint uh, uh, on that. So an ecological footprint would measure the ecological impact of a given industry or even single product or action in the same way that a carbon footprint measures the impact in terms of how much carbon is emitted. And just as carbon footprints can be taxable, so too could broader ecological footprints. Uh, that is ongoing discussion uh, as well on European level. We talk about uh, this topic uh, under, under the wording eco-design. I do not like very much this wording, but I think it's important. And maybe you've heard that, um, uh, for me, one of the most important commissioners, who was Thierry Breton, a very, very experienced uh, French uh, industrialist. Well, he said, well, we need to think as well about the kind of green border tax. So that we that we do not import things that have a quite important uh, CO2 uh, backpack uh, that we ignore, uh, and if we buy lots of ingredients to to, to products that are done very bad ecological uh, footprint, well, this should be as well integrated in the footprint of the product that we have in Europe. If if you think about a private car, if you think about a company car of a boss, if he drives Mercedes class S, if he if he rides on Dacia or Rolls Royce. Nobody really asks the question about the return on investment. And then concerning the private car, well, return on investment, from the economic point of view, the private car is an economic disaster. So the ecological footprints of products and services that Europeans buy need to be evaluated and factored into the prices which are paid. 
I can see how this could motivate producers to reduce their eco footprints. Sounds like a great initiative going forward. Greg, I see you've got a question. Andre, can, can you help us to understand some of the specific um, initiatives that your organization is working on, what the timing would be, and, and, and to the degree that they're on like a European level, in what way do you envision them kind of coming down specifically to actions within the member states? Don't forget ESMC has been created uh, earlier this year. Uh, and with all these corona impacts, um, a larger rollout has been a little bit more complicated than we expected. But um, we are uh, participating to, together with uh, some friends uh, from uh, VDMA, with Solar Power Europe and ETPV, uh, in a structure that is called uh, a Solar Manufacturing Accelerator. Sorry, Andre. Just to clarify who these organizations are, ESMC is the European Solar Manufacturing Council, of which you, Andre Langwost, is Secretary General. ETIP-PV is the European Technology and Innovation Platform for Photovoltaics, and VDMA is the German Mechanical Engineering Industry Association. And together they formed the Solar Manufacturing Accelerator. And there we had uh, something like 10 days ago, we had a large gathering uh, uh, and I think five ministers from European countries as well, somebody from Hungary has been joining. Um, and there have been 10 projects presenting their, their ideas uh, about um, their rollout for um, solar industry in Europe. I do the maths more or less, that would be uh, uh, 30,000 jobs in Europe and that are direct jobs. Yes, Andre, I've read that the Accelerator is working with many businesses in Europe building components and technology for the solar industry including films and storage devices and wafers, such as the Norwegian firm Norsun, which you talked about earlier. You've talked about the creation of 30,000 solar industry jobs coming soon to Europe, which in turn could create four times that number. But how will all this help Europe compete with China, which currently leads the world in solar technology manufacturing? Um, if the panels are slightly um, more expensive, we need to think about okay well how can we how can we balance uh, the price how can we make sure as well that uh, that there's fair trade and fair trade is the meaning of uh, that there are no specific advantages uh, other regions offer that uh, make uh, european panels more expensive uh, for example one of the main topics for chinese pv industry was uh, easy access to cheap money we had the discussion with uh, the vice president of uh, european investment bank and mcdowell so far, I do not have the impression that uh, IAB uh, understands that uh, solar PV is one of the front runners in, for the future uh, electricity system in Europe. We need better and cheaper access to, to, to capital. There's plenty of uh, capital available. So what they need sometimes is that these front running projects get a little bit more backup credit guarantees, maybe from the national or the European uh, structures. Uh. Uh, so sorry, Andre. Uh, Greg, you look like you're bursting with something to say. Uh, there are already some initiatives for new production within quite a few of the member states, especially uh, from some of the stuff I've seen after the, after the virus. So how can, how can the initiatives you're working already fit within that framework? The majority of people that invest in electricity uh, or in, in energy as such, they do not really care too much about climate, uh, but uh, they care about money. Um, let me explain why. Uh, last year in Germany, uh, electricity production by coal went down by 30%. Why? Because the carbon price went up. We need to put a price tag on, uh, on things that are bad for the society. And carbon, everybody agrees, is not uh, the best thing that, uh, that, that we can have. 
Now, now Greg, you, you were talking to me recently about the opportunity to investors of investing in solar because they could get better returns than from other investments these days. Um, that seems to be a, uh, to line up with what Andre was just saying. What yeah, it is interesting because like I've heard on several different panels things like that there have been bids, let's say for two cents in places like France. It's a little bit of a slippery slope because if all of a sudden regulators hear this and they start to put bids out for two, three or even four cents, then the whole thing becomes very unattractive in most parts of Europe to invest. Greg, these bids that you're talking about are bids from the private sector to build new solar energy parks in places like France. And the prices that you're citing are the electricity prices that they're being paid when they have these plants up and running. Don't ask me why. The bids uh, in, in, in France and the, the open tenders are uh, even higher compared to Germany probably because there's more competition uh, in Germany uh, and in France, it's sometimes quite complicated to participate in that kind of bid. Does this answer your question, Greg? We talked about a comparison between a fuel source where you can have inherently storage together with it or solar where you need to provide storage separately. You have to have a weighted cost between the solar produced and something that either batteries for the solar or, yeah. or balancing it off with something else will create some kind of an overall cost that's probably hopefully still lower than what you would get with the fossil fuels. Is that what you're seeing now? Uh, well, there's a huge potential for this. But for this, it's, it's well quite Im Im uh, important that, that we think as well a little bit more holistic. I mean, if we stay in the centralized system, if the electricity goes to one player and uh, one player distributes it, well, uh, you have less uh, opportunities to, to um, combine electricity production as well with other services. Um, what do I mean with this? Uh, there are still, in France, um, in, in Germany, quite a lot of uh, local utility companies. And these local utility companies, uh, they offer much more uh, because they uh, run very often the local grid. Uh, they are in charge as well of putting uh, uh, charging facilities for electric vehicles. Uh, sometimes they are as well in charge of a local um, uh, heat grid. Uh, so when they have too much electricity uh, coming around, well, if they've plan that in a, in a decent and intelligent way, where they have possibilities to store it in a different way. They have possibilities as well to, to use um, storage, large-scale storage facilities. Um, there's one excellent company um, uh, that's even run by a friend of mine uh, coming from the same town, uh, which is called Wehmark, which is in northern parts of um, eastern Germany, uh, headquartered in Schwerin. Very innovative. Um, they, they, uh, they've put the, the first large-scale uh, battery uh, within their grid. Uh, they invest massively in, 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 uh, in wind, but as well in solar PV. And they understand the, the, the energy system is more complex than to produce electricity only. So the winning progressive energy investors are those who take an holistic approach. They consider energy production, but also who will consume their energy, whether it's electricity or heat. And they're also thinking about storage and optimizing technology at every step. And they involve themselves with the entire process, rather than focusing on a single step, such as electricity production. Andre, what about with regards to the solar systems being, for example, to, to make something in Europe attractively produced in Europe, we had already touched on the fact that these systems that are currently being produced, when they have to be retired, I don't know, in 30 years, whenever they have to be retired, there'll be a period where they have to be retired 20 years, 30 years, and the materials that they're made of, how environmentally friendly they are. Is there some initiatives in Europe to make requirements along those lines that could maybe make European producers, I don't know, have some kind of a head start and advantage in that 
Um, there's a structure called PV cycle or PV recycle. Concerning the, the first panels that, that had been built, it's, it's something a little bit complicated because uh, there had been lots of different technologies. And at that time, the first idea was, okay, how do I recycle them? But the question is, how do I make the panels as uh, efficient as possible? And you see, when I arrived in France some, a little bit more than 10 years ago to go into renewables, uh, I was surprised when there had been some conferences. First topic about uh, renewable energy was the, prob the problems of recycling of PV panels. Well, why should I recycle the panels that I've installed more than 30 years ago? Um, and uh, I was the first, uh, they produce nowadays, 35 years later, just 64, 65%. So efficiency is less, but they're still working. So uh, let us use them. But very important, and here I come back to the research. Um, very important is that we think, okay, well, how can we reuse the, the biggest part of the, uh, of the panels? Um, you know, large part is glass, quite a lot of numbers of rare materials inside. We need to see, well, how can we reuse them? Recycle has very often different uh, different ways of doing it. Uh, and you see in, in some areas, well, when, the, when in Europe they talk about recycling, well, that means terming recycling, uh, which is burning. That is no real recycling. So we need more to think reuse. Uh, and we need to think as of the very beginning of the concept of a new PV panel, well, how can a reuse part of it and of course if i can reuse large parts for the, from the panel i could have some cost effects so reuse rather than simply recycling is a further component of this holistic approach to pv energy production instead of burning or burying discarded panels they can be deconstructed and later find homes in new panels or some other finished goods you mentioned pv cycle a non-profit member-based organization which started in France and now works across the continent, specializing in just this, not just for panels, but inverters, batteries, and so forth. Reduce the need for fuel, reduce waste, practice sector coupling to link renewable energy production with optimized consumption, calculate the ecological footprint of industries, products, and services, and makes them taxable in the same manner that carbon footprints are taxable. This is the holistic approach. Now let's change topics slightly to another major industry, which is very much to be affected by the transition from conventional to renewable fuel, in particular so solar. What are your thoughts, Andre, on the future of the great European car industry? Uh, no matter if it's electric car or if it's um, uh, hydro car, whatever. I mean, we need to think about uh, new ways. We need to ask as well different questions. Uh, diesel is not a new way. And if they put so much effort to hide what they did with the diesel engines. Aha, uh -huh. you refer to the 2015 scandal involving VW, wherein the car maker purportedly installed a defeat device on its diesel-powered cars to mask their level of emissions rather than actually work to lower their levels of emission. Well, if they would have put a fraction of this in new technology, I think we would have been much further. Uh, I mentioned before that from the economic point of view, a private car is an economic disaster. Yes. Do I need a private car? No. What do I need? I need transport. So we need to ask as well different questions. Um, well, uh, probably uh, lots of my countrymen from Germany were going to kill me because of that. Uh, because, I mean, do we need in Germany 80 million cars? No. We need a much better transport system. And I think as well, Corona crisis taught us, well, we do not move, need to move that much. So how do we organize transport? I, I'm, I'm living next door to, to a wonderful country called Switzerland. Transport there is, is an item. 
that is very important for the for for running uh, the show in Switzerland. Uh, and the people working for for the, the Swiss railway company there, they're proud of working because they're proud uh, to be part of the entire show. And uh, it depends on that. In other countries, it's not as reliable. It's it's, it's not as well organized. Um, so um, then they have got more problems. And most of all, they, they've got much more traffic jams. So you say we need to ask different questions about transportation. Think less about cars and more about how to move people around in a clean and efficient way. If we do use cars, you seem to favor electric ones. What about electricity in general? Do we need to ask different questions about it too? It depends where you are. Uh, you see, one, one of the main hot topic in, in Europe is as well uh, immigration, particularly immigration coming from, from, uh, from Africa. I mean, what is the reason why the people leave uh, rural areas in Africa? Because they do not have lots of chances over there. The key um, to, 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 to move there is electricity, because with electricity you can get as well clean, uh, clean water and so on and so on. Nigerian friend told me, well, listen, uh, Andre, um, well, in Nigeria, everything is off grid. Because although we are connected to the grid, uh, um, the production of electricity is sometimes uh, so unreliable. Uh, so the majority of people, if, if they really depend on electricity, well, they, they, they've got their uh, systems so um, uh, that they do not rely 100% on, on the national grid. Um, but as a matter of fact, they've got as well enough sun. So now we need as well to think about a different business model. Last year, I've been to Berlin, to the Berlin Energy Transition Dialogue. And there had been, uh, around this, there had been a startup competition. And uh, out of the five prizes, two went to Uganda. Okay, for, for me, it was not really, the, the, uh, in my mind, the hotspot for, for startup companies, but it is. And, and one of the companies, while well, we're talking about electric cars or electric vehicles, international, and uh, th this has been started by two engineers. They, they started together in, in Aachen and Germany. Um, they said, okay, well, we need transport in Uganda. And how do we do that? So they, they removed the old uh, thermal engines from, from the old motorcycles. They put in an electric motor because that is not that complicated. And they assembled um, the batteries in Uganda. So that brings uh, jobs to Uganda uh, that they need. And where do they get the electricity from? Well, I can tell you in Uganda, there's as well some sun. So this helps as well the, the regions uh, to, to, to get started, to develop. We see a lot of electric powered two wheel vehicles here in Turkey. I'm just hoping we could see some more electric four wheel vehicles, namely electric cars. But there's a lot of issues around importing that make it very expensive. Sure, there are lots of really smart engineers in, in Turkey. Well, they, they could do the same. I mean, may, maybe buy the, the engines from, from China, put them in old uh, cars or whatever. Then let's find as well some lawyers that are smart enough uh, to, to find a way around all the Turkish regulations. And then let, let's go for that. Very good. Uh, Andre, I just want to go back for just one second, because I, um, when we're talking about residential solar versus industrial solar, and in that presentation that we all looked at yesterday about the Green New Deal. The presentation you speak of, Greg, is from July 2020 about the EU Green Deal, a proposed recovery plan for the European Union from the pandemic economic crisis. The Green Deal focuses on promoting green energy and clean technology solutions to drive the EU's economy toward an era of sustainability, accompanied by an increasingly healthy environment. Uh, there was some very, very, very clear motivating incentives, for example, in Germany to buy an electric vehicle. Yeah. Um, and I know countries like Holland, for example, I remember arriving in Holland, at one business meeting I had been there and six months later, all of a sudden, all the taxis were uh, electric Teslas. It was, I found out from talking to them, it was a very clear incentive from a tax perspective. 
and that just got things rolling. So a lot of things, these things get rolling and, and then they become even more fashionable. So it's a kind of a chicken and the egg. Yeah. Um, the, the electric vehicle is very, very clear. The residential thing from looking through this presentation is less clear. So I don't see any kind of real strong, very, very clear initiatives to put on your roof panels. It's much more cloudy in terms of how, even for myself, I'm looking at doing panels on my roof. I've already done some industrial stuff. It's much harder for me to get workers to come here and do something on my roof than it is to do a, a full-scale solar panel because the, the best uh, uh, technicians are out there doing fields. They make more money on it than they do on an individual roof. Yeah. So how, how do, what are the incentive processes in place for rolling out residential solar, and how do you see that developing? Well, I think here it depends as well on the business model. Uh, and I'll give you one example. There had been a, a company created uh, somewhere in Bavaria, Vipols uh, Ried. And there had been a company called Sonnen. Sonnen is the translation of, of, uh, uh, of the sun. You're talking about the German solar energy firm Sonnen, S-O-N-N-E-N dot D-E, in Vipols Ried, outside of Munich. And uh, they said, okay, well, what we propose to, uh, to private homeowners is we install the rooftop, uh, PV uh, installations, and we sell it to you with a storage facility. But um, uh, we make you a special price under the condition that you give us uh, the authority to, to use parts of the electricity that is inside of your, electric, uh, your, your battery. And so the price was very competitive. Uh, and then if you do this uh, in a centralized way, if you have 1,000, 10,000 of, of batteries in the homes and just can use 20% of that, well, then you can sell that when you have, when you have load peaks and uh, then you can sell it to the grid. And if you have then as well the possibility of using the facilities that all these batteries can, can give to the grid to stabilize the grid, well, that is a service that you can give to, 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 to the grid and you can make some money out of that. And the business concept that this Sonnen company had was so good that even, uh, um, well, now they're sold uh, and imagine to what kind of company? Shell. So this German solar energy company, Zonnen, which had a, an innovative business model whereby the surplus energy charge on its batteries installed in people's homes was sold to Shell, the oil company. So uh, that, some, some of the old horses, well, they, they understand um, they, they need to change. Uh, by the way, the study that or the, the presentation that I sent yesterday. Andre, you also referred to the presentation on the EU Green Deal that Greg referred to earlier. Uh, that came from Asset Management Bank, private bank coming from Switzerland. Yeah? So they understand there's huge business that they can do. Um, and they understand, well, what, what I thought was thrilling and I really enjoyed as well the presentation uh, is that even these banks, they understand that it's good business uh, and there's a return on investment. Um, and that they should be uh, very aware of, of uh, new um, uh, business cases on that. And then you said, well, it's complicated to, to get the people. Well, set up a company. If you, if you see it's complicated to, um, uh, to, to get the people, probably there's a market. Uh, think maybe you can combine that with a storage facility. You can combine that uh, with a make whatever kind of uh, business case, uh, leasing contract with an electric vehicle. Plenty of possibilities. I mean, when something doesn't work, well, you should think, well, as, a, as an entrepreneur, well, what can I do? Can I find my business case or not? Andre, thank you so much for covering such a wide area of ground for us regarding solar PV in Europe, its background, what's happening now, and what we can look forward to. In the few minutes we have left, 
Would you go back to a topic you touched on earlier? Those regions of Europe where solar hasn't taken deep root and coal is still widely used. You mentioned Poland, where you've lived and worked. What would it take to get the poles to switch from coal to solar? But as a matter of fact, I would like to have as well some, some Polish partners um, producing in, in Poland. Wow. And you see, uh, something some like two years ago uh, on, the, on the InterSolar trade show, there had been one event, a high industry forum organized by Solar Power Europe. And that was just before the, uh, the COP in, in Katowice. And I told to Marusz Szefkowicz, uh, at that time vice president of the commission, a really good guy, I told him, hey, Marusz, when you, when you go to Katowice, bring the Polish people on a silver plate, a PV uh, plant, uh, manufacturing plant. That gives Polish job, uh, particularly in the carbon, in the coal area. Because what we need to understand, oh, yeah. if, if we want the, the Polish to, to abandon coal, they need the jobs. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very exciting. But that was yeah. awesome. We'll be in touch. Yeah. Yes, would be, would be a pleasure. Okay, Greg, take care and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Greg, and thank you, Andre. It's been a great pleasure as well as an education having you with us. This concludes yet another installment of the Perimeter Insight podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it and will join us again soon.